all said.
Good morning, everyone. So we have some uh, longtime friends we haven't seen in a while that are back. Welcome back. Hi, Jerry. Ken, Ella. Can you hear me okay? Well, it's on, so maybe I'm not on today. Okay, a couple of announcements. Uh, days of praise, acts and facts are in the foyer there for us, and we do have our offering envelopes. Uh, we will resume our evening service tonight at 6 p.m., bring drinks and a dish to pass. Updates. Ken, uh, you're back. Can we have a quick update from you on what's going on? Well, I look for my annual physical. They were in the process of doing the blood draw. And uh, in the process, I conked out on them again. I was out for a little lot more than they really anticipated to. They were getting a little concerned. Cardiologist says when they start poking your body, your body is very sensitive. When they start poking around, your body responds to that. Well, I hadn't, I, I had to fast for that. Well, I was just took enough water to, to take my medication while I was probably on the brink of dehydration. your prognosis uh, long term, short term? How, how well, are things I going? Back in three months and check some more. So essentially your heart's doing okay right now? Well, I flunked the stress test. And they say my heart is not getting enough blood to the body parts, so I don't, I don't know what the cure is for that beyond me. A lot of people accuse me of not getting enough blood to my head, so uh, I don't know what the cure is for but that they, either. They've done all kinds of tests and <coughs> my heart is pumping good, but I don't know why it's not getting to the bottom part. Well, hopefully the Lord will give the doctor some guidance. Gary, it's good to see you back. How are you feeling, sir? Doing good. You look well. Welcome back. Bella? <laughs> well, there you go. There's, there's, a, there's a level of stress right there, isn't it? Jerry, nice to have you back with us. How's Charles doing? You doing okay? Tell him we miss him. We'd like to see him back here. Okay, do we have any uh, information on anything else going on? Any prayer requests? Uh, some of you have heard about uh, Dave Holmes. Uh, passing this last week. Uh, he did a lot of work on our vehicles over the years with his Uncle Bob. And uh, it's a real tragedy. I don't know what his uh, spiritual state was. 
That, that in itself is a tragedy. So. We do know that we serve an awesome Lord and God, and uh, He does use things and He does use tragedy to get His point across sometimes. from the post office okay all right well we need to keep that family in prayer bob as sheila said is just a tremendous individual in all other aspects but he's lost he's lost as can be in his spiritual life and uh, like we've often talked about in the past uh, good men go to hell as easily as the evil when they're not in christ so Let's, let's hold them up in prayer. Any other uh, comments, questions, uh, prayer requests, anything like that we can address? Good thought. Being nothing else than our scripture for meditation this morning is going to be taken from the Trinity hymn book, page 791. It's going to be a responsive reading, Psalm 24. <clears throat> when you come to that, please stand with us. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in.
Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Dale, would you lead us in prayer this morning?
one of the three hymnals that we have. Actually, we technically have five. What's my favorite hymn? Um, most of the time it's, um, I don't need to choose, you guys choose. Check the brown too. I'm checking the brown right now. Red has more words most of the time. They don't change as many words. We'll do that again.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the final book of the Bible, Revelation, the final chapter, chapter 22, starting with verse 6 through 21. It'll be 1938 in your pew Bibles. When you arrive at that, please stand with us. Chapter 22, verse 6 through 21. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride says, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of the prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Father, may you add your blessings to the reading of this holy and inspired word. Let it impact the hearts of the lost, but reassure the hearts 
of those that you have you in your grasp. In the name of Christ, amen. Will you take your red hymnal again and turn to 195 in the trimnal? Trinity hymnal. That's trimnal when you put the words together. 195. <laughs> As you turn there, you're thinking, wait, this is the Christmas section. Why are we going to sing a Christmas song in the middle of July? And it's not because of Christmas in July. <coughs> First of all, you can sing a Christmas song any time of year. Any time. But secondly, this is technically not a Christmas song. Most of you probably know that because you probably heard Jared say that at least once or twice over the past uh, couple of decades. But it is actually a second coming hymn. That's why we are singing it this morning. 195. <coughs> Good to see you this morning, gathered after another busy week of life that God has granted to us, and all the things that he's done. It's been a hard week, it's been a hard week, um, 
in all the events that's transpired even in our little church. And thankful for the the answered prayer uh, this week and also even for the tragedies that cause us to stop and remember that life is short. This week, um, this, this title is of the sermon is The Conquering King. It is part two of a very short series, two-part series concerning the battle that is raging even now and that we are a part of whether we realize it or not. The Conquering King. I think sometimes we as Christians don't dwell enough on Jesus as this person, the conquering king. He is prophet, priest, and king. And with that title comes an understanding. We, we look at the kings of history and we project them on Christ and the reverse should be true. You look to Christ to know what a king is. And the rest that come throughout history, whether they, we call them kings or presidents or chancellors or whatever, they pale in tremendous comparison to him. So I pray that you uh, will get something from the message today and that uh, we'll have a better understanding of this great king whom we serve. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another day of life, and we take them for granted, Lord, often. Hardly ever do we stop to think about the gift of life and the fact that we have purpose. Pray, Lord, that you will be with us this morning, that our ears would be open, our eyes, our spiritual eyes would be open, that we'd be able to see and hear the truth, and that, Lord, that it would affect us and change us. For those that know you, Lord, may we be conformed ever the more into the image of your Son. And for those outside the kingdom today, Lord, I pray that you will bring them into your kingdom. We ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the subject of the war between God and Satan. We learned that this ancient war has been ongoing since Satan declared that he would be like the Most High, which was a lie. Since God, who is holy and the actual embodiment of truth, cannot abide sin, he cast Satan from his presence. And the war has continued to wage over millenniums. Today, we look at this ongoing war in a more personal sense. There is a war for the church and within the church. Furthermore, there is a war within each and every member today. We will look at the inward struggles against sin. To understand this struggle that goes on within every life, we must remember what we learned last week, and that is that every single person ever born on this planet is born a sinner. Remember that scripture says not even one does right. And for a lot of people, they don't even know that they're in a struggle. In fact, truly, there isn't any struggle. They were born a sinner, and they will die a sinner. For many people, a challenge to be holy never comes. Their flesh and their spirit are both on the same side. And they agree with each other over everything. But for some, the few who hear the gospel their conscience may be pricked. And for a brief moment, their worldview may come under attack. And in that moment, they will have to determine 
if they are indeed as good as they thought they were, or possibly not as good as they thought. And maybe this thought occurs for the first and only time in their lives. If only the challenge was enough to convict and move two people to believe. But the heart is stubborn and deceived. As we have seen, it takes God to move us from one camp to the other. And let's see this morning if we can demonstrate the true understanding of human nature. That is, in the true nature of the flesh. Ask anybody on the street who isn't a Christian whether or not man is born good or evil, and most answers you'll receive is that man is born good. No one wants to believe that their situation is as bad as it really is. No one wants to believe that they didn't have a chance to prove that they were good or evil. These are unpopular ideas with mankind, yet they are the truth. This is easily demonstrated when you consider the behavior of any child. If you are a parent, you understand that you did not have to teach your children to lie to you. They do that autonomously without your help. And the first time they do this, they demonstrate that their heart is no good. Now, you may consider yourself, consider to yourself, how can one small lie prove or demonstrate that the heart is evil? My question to you at this point is, where did that little bit of evil come from? If their heart is completely good, there is no way that something evil can originate from it. Even one time. When confronted with their first lie, some parents take it upon themselves to show their children what is truth and what is falsehood. They try to explain the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie. Some people chalk this up to experiential knowledge, as in, my child did not know the difference between truth and falsehood until he experimented with both of them. But truth is not something that needs to be experienced to be understood. No, truth by itself is truth. Truth does not need your perspective or evaluation to exist. It is like light and darkness. You would not know what darkness is if you had never experienced the absence of light. Do you see how important, brethren, it is to understand the full character of God? God is truth. Without God, there is only falsehood. God is light. Without God, there is only darkness. Consider as well, after the passing of a loved one, friends and relatives will often suggest that that person is now in heaven looking down on us. What makes us ponder such a thing? First of all, why do we care? What makes us believe there's anything after this life? And if there is something after this life, why do we care about heaven and hell? If we do think that there's a heaven, where did we get this concept? You see, in all these questions and concepts, there is the faint echo of the truth. People know the truth. It is just clouded and hard to see with unregenerate eyes. If all people are born good, then when they die, they should automatically be in heaven. But if there is even the smallest chance of a person not being good, 
then heaven as a destination is questionable. But here we see the common problem with starting with an idea that all are born good. If they are born good and can die evil, where is the line eventually drawn? At what point does a good person turn bad? Well, speculating with this idea for a moment, how many errors did Adam and Eve make before they went from innocent and good to wicked and evil? One indiscretion. Just one. Without using the Bible for reference, the line between being good and evil is an unknown variable and will be defined solely by the evaluation of the person pondering the idea. There is definitely no standard then. Brethren, sanity can only be found in having a stable foundation upon which to build logical thinking. If the definition of what is good moves around constantly or is dependent upon each person to make a decision, there can be no common ground. There can be no absolute truth, only wishy-washy opinions by clouded and darkened minds, a pooling, if you will, of ignorance. Now then, if this is our own starting point, if we all start life blinded and are unable to do good, if truth is external to us and we are beholden upon it to reveal itself to us, how would we ever be able to know the truth if it chooses to never reveal itself to us? If external objective truth is never heard by our ears so that we might recognize it, then we continue on in our life happily existing without ever knowing, making up our own guideposts of truth along the way. However, there are two truths we may know about this situation. First, God has not left us completely without some objective truth. He has made us in His image, and therefore there is an innate desire to search for and value truth. And, maybe more importantly, He has actually written part of His Word on all of our hearts. <laughs> For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. In other words, they don't need someone telling them that lying is wrong. Every single civilization knows that lying is wrong. They know that murder is wrong. They know that stealing is wrong. They know the code and moral law of God. They just don't know why they know these things. For all the truth written on their hearts and what can be observed in this created universe in which we all live, there's not enough truth there to make them completely aware of the righteous and holiness of God Almighty, with whom they are with at war. Romans 1, 18-20 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And that brings us back to the garden and the serpent's original half-truth to Eve. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in complete truth. They knew God. Therefore, they knew truth. And when they sinned, they traded unhindered and intimate access to God for his absence. They actually lost truth and knowledge that day. The knowledge of good and evil is actually the knowledge of being without God and being without the Creator. Consider the immediate consequences for their sin. They covered themselves. They hid from God. And finally, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. All of this is separation from God. The situation that they were in is the complete opposite of our situation. We are born in complete darkness, never having ever experienced light. We have only ever truly known the absence of intimacy with God. At the same time, not realizing our current position as an enemy of God and the object of his wrath. But God says in his word, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 9, verse 2. We mentioned last week that God converts members of Satan's army into his family. This is a major part of the war between these two kingdoms. Every person born on this planet starts as a conscript within Satan's army. And over the course of time, God chooses members of Satan's kingdom and army to turn irrevocably and join God's kingdom. He causes them to be traitorous to their home kingdom. I find this strategy quite interesting considering the fact that it was Satan who converted Adam and Eve from God's family into his kingdom. Since that initial conversion, God has converted countless people while Satan has only ever converted two. More on the imbalance of the war at the end of the message. But God does not completely and instantaneously change us into holy individuals. He chooses to leave us in our corrupted bodies, but now occupied by a regenerate soul. Subsequently, we struggle with sin all of our lives. This is the war that we face on a daily basis. The Bible says we have three enemies of our souls. The flesh, the world, and the devil. I would dare say that our interaction with the devil and his minions may not happen very much on a daily basis, but I may be wrong about that. I just don't know. But we can isolate ourselves from the world, at least in part. We can take a holiday away from the cares of this world and away from its influence. But even then, no matter where we go, we cannot retreat from the corruption of nature. It's all around us. However, the enemy that we can never hide from is the enemy that we carry with us everywhere we go. Every waking and non-waking moment, 
We are in a battle with our flesh. The flesh wants one thing. The spirit wants something else. And they fight. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. <coughs> so I find it <coughs> to be a law, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, but in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 7 verses 14 through 25. So why doesn't God instantly and completely sanctify every believer upon conversion? I mean, why even have a battle within? Couldn't God end the war within as quickly as it starts? And I am sure God is able to do so. But as with all things, God has a plan and a perfectly designed purpose for our struggle with sin following our conversion. First of all, we must remember that although we may be the battleground and it is our spirit and flesh that are at war, the actual truth is that we are not our own. Our entire being belongs to God. Therefore, this battle belongs to the Lord. Your internal war is actually part of the greater war. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Brethren, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God will only allow us in glory if we eradicate any and all sin from our lives. We cannot do this. We do not even know the extent of our own sin. What it does say is that God will eradicate any and all sin from our lives. God wins the war, and he wins each and every battle within each and every one of his people. Do you struggle with sin this morning, Christian? Take heart. God must and does know all of your sin if he is to cover it all with the blood from the sacrifice of his precious son. Not one little lie will be left uncovered 
to condemn you? Are you weary with fighting the same desires over and over again, wondering why you cannot be simply finished with it? Dear brother, you are not finished yet. God has undertaken the work. Has he ever failed to complete something that he has started? Has he ever failed? Does your heart yearn and long to be free and unhindered by sin? Child of God, just wait a bit longer. Freedom is coming. Most assuredly, it will come. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, verse 36. <clears throat> Brethren, we are the battlegrounds within the great war of God against sin. Not until every single person whose name was written within the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world has heard and perceived the truth with new ears and new eyes. Not until the last soul has been snatched from the kingdom of Satan and adopted into the family of God will the war be over. Your battle is the Lord's and the Lord Jesus Christ is the conquering king. Secondly, and far more beautiful in my opinion, is the purpose for our sanctification. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, <clears throat> that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, we, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. You see, brethren, God has always had a plan for us beyond simply saving us from one kingdom to another. He has always planned for us to be of use to him following our conversion and even beyond our final sanctification. He has prepared those in the past, is preparing us now, and will continue to prepare those in the future who are his for a much greater purpose than simply being one of the countless trophies from the conquest of war, although we certainly are exactly that. No, brethren, we are saved from the world, from Satan's kingdom, from our sins, and from ourselves. But we are also saved to righteousness, to be a part of a greater entity, to be the actual bride of Christ. And one day, to be united to him. Ephesians 5, 25-33 reads, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. At first thought, we may think that we are going to lose some individuality, like we are somehow absorbed to, com to some corporate entity, this amalgamation, if you will, of souls, the bride of Christ. And to answer this fear, let me first say that the reason we may think that is due to our lacking as fallen creatures. Let me explain. We cannot fathom something that, that's large and has countless working parts together as a cohesive entity. Our brains are not big enough to comprehend. But let me just say that your physical body is made up of organs and tissues and bones, all of which we know, know exactly how to operate together so that your body functions properly. But let's go deeper. Your organs, tissues, and bones are all made of cells. Each cell has parts that function within it to make sure it is capable to do its job. All cells are made from molecules that are made from atoms, that are made from subatomic particles, that are made from sub-subatomic particles, and so on. Each one of these parts does its job within your body and is doing so even now. Do you believe that Jesus Christ knows and furthermore controls every part of your physical body? Do you think every part is important and thereby designed? You are a walking testimony to the awesome power of God. It should not be difficult for us as Christians to make the mental jump that each of us, no matter how small or insignificant we may feel, are not important in his makeup of his bride at the end of all time. We had a purpose at birth for this earth, and we have a purpose beyond this mortal life. In both places and time, we have an awesome designer who is worthy of praise simply for our creation and purpose as well as maintaining and sustaining what he has designed and created. We are known here and now amidst the curse of God, and we will not be lost to obscurity in the perfect age to come within the beautiful bride of Christ. God be praised. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper,
clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh crystalline, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 9 and following. The bride of Christ is perfect. All of the numbers mentioned in this passage are symbolic of its perfection. The many jewels listed are representative of its radiance and beauty. In this description, we can see some of the seemingly impossible designs of God. In verse 21, 12 gates formed from a single pearl. Those are pretty large pearls, like never have been seen before. And also in verse 21, streets paved with gold so pure, it looks like transparent glass. You know, our highest rating of gold is 24 karat. By its definition, 24 karat gold is considered to be pure gold, being 99.9% .9 gold. Ah, but what about that 1.1%? That makes all the difference in the world. I do not believe that human eyes have ever seen pure gold. The clarity of God's untainted gold is like transparent glass. I love verses 22 and following. They describe the uniqueness of this bride. Verse 22. There is no temple to go and to worship God. There is no holy of holies behind a curtain. There is no veil anymore. In verse 23, there is no need for light sources as God himself provides all the light needed. 
In verse 25, although there are gates, they will never be shut. They are open and complete. They provide complete access all the time. In verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. No more sin. Ever. Her purity and perfection will always and forever be. The purpose for this entire war is this moment in time not yet realized. God is making, has been making, and will succeed in making a beautiful and radiant bride for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a moment and envision your wedding. Although us grooms try hard to look presentable for our brides, all eyes are on the bride as she walks down the aisle. She is the last to enter. Everyone stands. An overwhelming feeling of happiness and joy overtake all who see her. She is wearing the best dress that she will ever wear. White and clean, intricately designed to amplify her beauty and radiance. But her gaze not on herself nor her guests no her eyes are fixed on her groom waiting for her at the end of the aisle with each step of grace she closes the distance to her awaiting love to be joined with him until death separates them each time we witness such an event we are witnessing a shadow of events to come. Except our union with Christ will never end because something other than sin is not allowed entrance into heaven. Death, by this time, has been swallowed up in victory. There can be no death if there is no sin. You see, the bride has to be pure. The stain of sin has to be completely gone. If there is to be an eternal union, there is more. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22 first five verses the throne of God and of the Lamb are within the city verse 4 states that we will see his face unveiled the tree of life is there and amplified it bears 12 kinds of fruits and I've said this before but think it needs restating today what is missing from this idyllic scene is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The test of fidelity to 
is gone. There is no hint of falling away. There is no shadow of sin in this land. Brethren, what exactly was lost in the fall? We may quickly jump to saying our lives. Sin killed our race. We would have lived forever had Adam and Eve not sinned. Possibly. I mean, Satan was already falling in around and maybe could have deceived the future generation. But I would say that losing our lives and receiving the curse were not the main or most important thing that we lost on that awful day. No, when Adam sinned and subjugated creation to the bondage and subsequent curse of sin, he severed the bond of intimacy with God. The cost of the severed relationship with God was and is incalculable. And so God will do what is necessary to restore the relationship, to restore the closeness, to restore the intimacy between himself and his bride. You know, I do believe that each husband here, and dare I say most of husbands throughout this fallen world, would do whatever they could to protect their wives from harm. They would put themselves in harm's way to even provide a chance for their wives to escape danger. They would even exchange their lives if it would secure her freedom. What makes you think that Jesus would let us weak husbands our pattern after the bridegroom Jesus Christ? Nothing will stop him from rescuing his bride. Not even his death. Brethren, the tiny picture of glory that we have here in Revelation shows us just enough to understand a great truth. What is restored ultimately in heaven is far greater than what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Heaven is far better. Brethren, while on earth the church, this church included, is part of the larger church. We are part of the bride of Christ while here. Jesus loves his bride while still afar off. Right now it's not perfect. It's comprised of in-progress saints. There's a lot of sin still resident within all of us that God is currently working to rid us of. And because of this, there are always issues and problems contained within Pastor Reed Ferguson used to say, and may still, to be above with the saints we love, ah, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. Yet I have to say that this, the church, the called out assembly, has been called to a purpose. We are called to be the body of Christ here on this earth and in this community. And as believers... We have no option but to love the church of God. If we don't, then quite frankly, we do not love Jesus Christ. Do you think for one moment that you and I would be okay if you told me that you loved me, but you hated my wife? Oh, I love Jesus. 
I just don't like Jesus' people very much. You know, the ones that Jesus died for. In fact, I can't stand them. Brethren, as members of the local assembly of believers with whom God has providentially placed you, your love for this church and its people, or lack thereof, demonstrates your actual love for Jesus Christ. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20-21 There should be no doubt in the minds of your brothers and sisters in Christ of your love for them. But the question must be asked and will be asked, do you love them? Now, who is this bridegroom we've been talking about? Who is this conquering king? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The world may scoff at this idea. The world's view of Jesus at best is one of a peacemaker, a healer, maybe a teacher, certainly not a king, let alone a conquering one. I mean, who did he lead while he was here? A small group of people for less than three years? kind of a short reign over the tiny kingdom, don't you think? And maybe this may be your mental picture of Jesus, and while it is true that his birth was meager in circumstance, the angels praised God greatly, even though their earthly audience was only lowly shepherds. His life was limited to a small area of the world, far less than the scope of conquerors of history. Yet he displayed more power in the execution of one small miracle than Genghis Khan ever did in the whole of his life. Concerning his death, the scriptures say, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection that went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
Matthew 27, 50 through 54. What earthly king was ever able to die by just yielding up his spirit? And how many had the events that followed? So many miraculous things happened that the guards tasked with his death said, truly this was the Son of God. Now there is a decent amount of evidence to challenge the erroneous thought that Jesus was some sort of milquetoast pacifist. No, he was a king. The king. He just sovereignly chose every circumstance that would be part of his earthly life. Concerning his first coming, this is what God says in his word. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53. This is Jesus the King coming as a servant and sacrifice. And believe it or not, he conquered while he was here. You see, his death is what secured the victory over sin and death. This is the defining moment in all of history. The war ends here. There is no chance for the enemy to win. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, continuing. There is a time coming that Jesus will come again. And this time there will be no possibility of people missing him or thinking that he is some sort of weak and passive king. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured, and within, with it the false prophet who, is in, who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now verse 7. And when a thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and haze were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death
Revelation 19 through 21, verse 8. To those of you outside of the kingdom of God this morning, there are a few hard things I must relay to you. First, your recognition of the fight and struggle with God is not enough to give you peace with God. It wouldn't give peace to any earthly situation to simply recognize that there's a conflict. Secondly, the conviction that you may be experiencing as a sinner is not enough to give you peace with God. Many criminals are convicted after the event of their crime and apologize with great remorse. Some families may forgive, but most do not. What do you think the king of all the universe thinks about your, I'm sorry? No, the only way to peace with this king comes by a kingly pardon. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. No action on your behalf for restitution will satiate the anger of God. From Jesus' own words, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Matthew 18, 23-27. Just so you understand the amount of debt mentioned here, a talent of money was the equivalent of 6,000 days of work. 10,000 talents equals 60 million days of work. Seeing that if we lived to the ripe old age of 100 and worked immediately from birth to earth, we would only earn 36,500 days, about six talents. You can see how exceedingly great the debt for this servant was. Yet the king cancels the debt. And at this point, we must see that the king in this story must have an exceedingly large amount of money for him to be able to dismiss the debt so easily. Yes, and that is exceptionally true of the king who this parable is really about. Jesus has sufficient riches to be able to cancel this debt and many, many others. He can cancel yours as well. 
So what is necessary for the king to pardon? Well, let's hear from the king himself. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 37-40. One final passage today that both outlines the compassion and power of this conquering king. <clears throat> Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the sea while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew 14, 22 and following. Lord, save me. That's all Peter said. I dare say that's probably all he could say, and all he needed to say, in the time he had before he started to go under. Amazing clarity comes to us when we sense impending danger. Nonetheless, the arm of Jesus is quick to move, even as we may have just noticed that we were amidst a raging storm. The arm of Jesus is able to grasp and raise us up, even as we may have only started to feel the icy waters pulling us to our death. The arm of Jesus is strong to place us in safety and calm the storm, even as we now have just realized that we were powerless to save ourselves. And these same arms of Jesus will one day embrace his bride. Call on him today while you are able to call. One day, maybe sooner than you expect, you will meet him. Will you be walking down the aisle or facing down his sword? I pray it is the former. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless only your word today, Lord. Work in the hearts of all of us this morning, Lord. We know that your word does not return to you void. So, Lord, we're asking for your spirit to move amongst your people today. Bless our time together. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Trinity, 546. Andrew will come.
understand me when you find number 
and willing to cast their cares upon Father, we do praise you and thank you for all you do for us. What great love you have displayed. And what wonderful truth you've dispensed. That we would know you and know the power of your love for us as your children. Go with us today, Lord, and help us be reminded of these things in our hearts and minds as we go through this week. Let them not slip away into oblivion, but allow us, Lord, to be able to hear your word speaking to our soul. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.